As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back. <laughs> you sound very matter of fact. Yeah. Well, well, here you're it is. here. Yeah. Now we're gonna get started. <laughs> okay. Do right. we do we go through the whole thing about how this is? Like, no, we don't do it. Yeah. So I think what we're gonna do now is just say that every podcast is different, much like snowflakes. Yep, we're all a snowflake. Oh, oh. <laughs> you idiot. Jesus. <laughs> We're all snowflakes. Yes. And this snowflake is going to feel like if you were sitting around a table with us and just chatting about a case and just like gal palling around about it. Yes. That's how this one feels. So if you like that, stay tuned. Yeah, because here and we go. And even if you don't know, just listen for a little bit, see how it feels. Yeah, who cares? Yeah. Maybe you'd be pleasantly surprised to know that we're hilarious and also awesome. Mm-hmm. And very pretty. <laughs> Which is very important during a podcast. Yeah. I've been told I have a face for podcasting. Oh. Such a compliment. Well, how sweet. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So today... Okay, so... Okay, but, like, seriously, okay. I know, so, like, let me just preface this. So, Tori texted me the other day and was like, holy shit, Cold Case Files Classic is on Hulu. Because I got really excited when Cold Case came on, Cold Case Files, but it's somebody else. It's Danny Glover. It's Danny Glover. And I'm Who's sorry, but, like... has got a great voice, but it's not the he same. He does, but it's not the same. It's not the same. Danny Glover can narrate any other show, really. He could also um, coach Angel's... In the outfield. Exactly. He's got many talents. It's just, he is not Bill Curtis. No, and he never will be. But Mm -hmm. they brought on Cold Case Files Classic, which has Bill Curtis's sweet, sweet voice. It makes you just feel like you can accomplish anything and do anything. It's like his voice envelops you in the safest feeling hug. Mm -hmm. And gives me butterflies a little bit. Oh. If I was 45 years older. Right. You'd be shaving above the knee for Bill Curtis, I bet. Bill Curtis. Yeah. So, yeah. So, we're going to do a cold case file. So, there's two cases if you don't watch cold case files, which I feel like all of you do. Like, we've all talked about it at some point. Right. Or your mother or grandmother has watched it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you used to see your grandmother watch it. But, (laughs) um, so there's two cases. So, we're going to cover both of them and 
Here we go. Yay! A warm summer evening in Los Angeles. A full moon hangs over the city. On the west side, Jerry Elster lives in a quiet neighborhood atop a hill. That sweet, sweet voice. I just love him so much. It's like a fine wine. Or I don't really, I don't drink whiskey, but Andrew talks about it sometimes. Or like, you know, you take a, take a drink of that whiskey and it just goes down smooth. It's just smooth and it makes you feel all warm inside. Yes. Like sitting around a nice campfire, you feel like a nice stick of butter melting on a big old pile of flapjacks. <laughs> exactly. That's Bill Curtis. That's Bill Curtis. We cannot shut up about him. Okay. The We're going to have to, though. <laughs> we are going to have to. Yeah, it's starting to get weird. The first case takes place in L.A. at the home of Jerry Elster in late August of 1992. We're told it's a quiet neighborhood with lots of older people, very neighbor-oriented, where people feel safe, which I feel like we always feel like we're safe, right? Like, all of these cases are like, this is a place where this would never, ever happen. Like, but that does sound like like maybe our nan and granddaddy's old neighborhood. Yeah. You and know? She, yeah, she did say there were a lot of, like, older people there because it was people who had lived there for a really long time. Yeah. An established neighborhood. Yeah. So at 1 a.m., a man slips into her backyard, enters her home through the patio, and he finds some jewelry, some other items, but he also finds her sleeping in her bed. She says that she woke up to find herself tied up with a person sitting on her. The man cuts her clothes off with a pair of scissors. She said that she didn't want to fight. She just wanted to do whatever he told her. Like, she just wanted to get it over with. She thought, if I just listen to him, do whatever he says, it'll be over. And he did cover her head as well, so she couldn't see him at all. She said he flipped her over, and then he started assaulting her. He raped her. For three hours. But while in between, he would go rummaging through her stuff. Right? Yeah, he's like ransacking her house, looking through her stuff. Then he'd come back. I mean, it's... Can you imagine just like... It probably felt like three days. Yeah, exactly. It's horrible. And she talks about it and it's so heartbreaking because she said that when it was happening, she just kind of like went somewhere else in her mind. But during that time, she also, you know, because it was a, a long time she's laying there. And so she started to feel, she said, these really intense emotions of anger and she wanted to kill him. And she said that she'd never had an ounce of that in her entire life, like had never felt that way about anybody, had never been that angry but with that happening to her, she just really felt like, you know, I wish I could kill this man. Like, he's just, he's brutalizing me. And she said that during the course of that, she said it just destroyed everything she thought about everything. She just felt like everything she felt about herself, about who she was as a person, was just destroyed in this one incident. It is so... I mean, I cannot imagine what that feels like or going through something like that, but it breaks my heart that something like that can have such a profound mm -hmm. and huge effect on your entire being. And I'm not yeah. trying to diminish it or discount it, but it's just so, it's so the gravity of it, you know, yeah. like just so sad. Yeah, because it's like he's obviously he's assaulting her physically, but 
it also made her feel like in that moment that she could never go back and be the same person she was before it happened. And it brought out feelings of, you know, those like feelings of rage in her and rightfully so. I mean, this man has broken into her house, has violated her in so many ways, Mm -hmm. but she's like, how can I go back to being who I was before this? Because the person I was before this had never felt this angry before and she felt like it totally changed who she was. And I feel like that's why support groups and victim advocacy organizations are so terribly important because you've got, I mean, I can't imagine like the pain and the emotional trauma that comes with these physical attacks, but you, she's got to live with that memory the rest of her life. And and I feel for like her, that's a life sentence. Totally. And I feel like that kind of stuff, even if you feel like you're on top of it, it creeps up on you when you're very vulnerable, like about to fall asleep or by yourself or, you know, it sneaks up on you in the most random or unexpected, unexpected ways. Yeah. Well, and like also then you have a hard time trusting people. Sure. You, you have know, a hard time being by yourself. Yeah. She's not. She doesn't feel safe when she goes places or even in her own home. You know, that's where before normally most people feel safe. And like even and because it's a sexual crime, I mean, if you get now you've got something just so violent attached to that act. You know what I mean? Like she's going to associate that with being attacked. And so something that should be a beautiful and intimate moment it has this terrible negative connotation to it yeah it just i don't know just fucking pisses me off it's like people who are going to commit whatever crime they commit you know a violent crime against a person they take away so much more than just whatever pleasure it is they're getting out of that moment and all it is for them is for i mean three hours is a long fucking time but still like for that bit of pleasure, for whatever reason, why they derive it from being so violent and controlling and whatever, and then it changes the trajectory of somebody else's life forever. And, these and it's people... for three hours of pleasure in their lives. Yeah. Selfish. Just, yeah. And, yes. so, so I just, and a lot of them get slap on the wrist. They get a couple months, couple years, whatever. They, you know, repeat offenders. And I mean, there's laws in place now for repeat violent attacks but at that time there was not and a lot of these people would just you know do it go in jail for a little while get released they're gonna keep doing it like it's just it's a never-ending cycle for a lot of these people Mm -hmm. but the victims have to live with it forever like you said it's a life sentence yeah it's just awful so back to the story around 3 30 a.m she finally feels like he's gone She doesn't hear him moving around in the house anymore, so she rolls off the bed onto the floor, and when he doesn't come running back in, she realizes he's gone. So she gets up onto her knees somehow. She's still tied up at this point. She got her cuticle scissors in her bathroom, and she cut her bindings. He'd used her own nylon stockings to tie her up from her laundry. She calls 911, and she's rushed to the emergency room. And she said at that point she just wanted to wash and feel clean again, but she had to wait for hours there in her PJs in the middle of the night in the emergency room while they were, you know, doing an exam, taking samples, all that kind of stuff. 
They did bring in a rape crisis therapist, Melanie Burke, and she meets with Jerry, who at that time was being questioned by the police. And she said that Jerry was just in shock about what had happened. She was in disbelief. She was overwhelmed with all the questions and so much chaos as she was just trying to process what had just happened to her. But Jerry kind of saw Melanie as, I think she even referred to her like as an angel. That's what I was going to say, yeah. Like her guardian angel. Like she could not have made it through that without Melanie. Yeah, I can't imagine. Like that's got to be really rewarding work for these therapists. But, you know, these, a victim going through what she had just gone through and then it's like I don't think that anybody wants to treat it like another day at the office or whatever but there's stuff you know they need to ask questions they want to get as much information as they can for an investigation I understand that but you know it's like she can't go through this as like business as usual like you have to be delicate yeah her life has changed and she's struggling to process it so she really needed that somebody coming in and and kind of helping her to process it and not feel like, because a lot of victims feel like it's their fault that they had done something to deserve it, which is really, really sad too. Because, you know, this a random attack or not, like, it's no one's fault. I mean, it's the person who has committed this act. Yeah, fault. exactly. And it's just like she needed to hear that it wasn't her fault. She, she was like an angel. She explained that it wasn't my fault, for one, and that reporting was the best thing that I could ever do. Jerry submits to a rape kit examination, and she describes that process as invasive, which I can only imagine. But she knows it's necessary in order to try to catch the man who had attacked her. So then we meet Detective Quinones, who is assigned to the case, and he has Jerry's rape kit sent to the L.A. Crime Lab tagged with a case number, and set next to thousands of other samples waiting to be tested. The evidence is only going to be tested if there's a strong suspect to test against. Detective Quinones combs through the police report to search for leads. Because of the nature of the crime, he said there was biologic evidence left behind. They were able to pull fingerprints from the scene, but none of them match in the database. Because the attacker covered Jerry's head, She didn't have a description to give police, and nobody in the area saw the man come or go. They just know that it happened. In the summer of 1992, there were 168 women raped in the city of L.A., and Detective Quinones says that the cases didn't stop coming in. He said he could have 50 to 100 cases per month, and he said when the new ones come in, the old ones just get shoved to the back of the shelf to make room for the new cases, and you just try to work the fresh ones. So, six months later, he still has no suspects, and Jerry's rape kit has not been tested. At that point, she started losing faith in her case ever being solved. Then we jump to 1995, so three years, and Bill gets pretty philosophical here. He says that L.A. is a city too preoccupied to notice that one of its own is lost. Oh, that's deep. Yeah. Yeah. It's now been three years since Jerry had been raped, and she'd kind of become a shell of a person. For a woman who has been sexually assaulted, there is no easy road back to a normal life. 
There is, however, a process of healing. Often it begins with the concept of justice, of seeing one's attacker caught so he can never hurt anyone again. For three years, Jerry Ulster has nurtured that hope until one day in 1995. Jerry's friend sent her a newspaper article of a rape that sounded similar to her own. She sends the article to her detective and she waits for a response, but she doesn't get one. So now we're to 1998, three more years. By now, Jerry has joined a support group for survivors of rape, and they, she said at one point, they got to talking about the statute of limitations for sexual assault, and nobody was quite sure what the time limit was. And she started to worry that her case might be approaching the time limit, and she was worried that they were going to miss being able to prosecute it. So she calls the LAPD to find out the status of her case, and in her words, she says she found out that she'd been archived just put on a shelf and left to rot. Nothing had ever happened. Detective Richard Guzman had taken her call, and he had only been a sex crimes detective for about a month at that point. Jerry told him about the article that she'd sent over three years ago to the first detective, and it had information about a possible lead. The man in the article had been convicted of other rapes in that area. So, Guzman asked her to send another copy of the newspaper article because when he called down for her file, the newspaper article wasn't even in it. It's like they didn't take it seriously. No, because, yeah, exactly. If they had, that's three years that they just wasted. Right. Pisses me off. Well, and at that point, especially for, I'm pissed about it just because I'm pissed about it, but Jerry had to feel a whole lot of feelings about it because She's doing her own investigation on Mm -hmm. it. Like, she's doing her own due diligence and trying to find out who raped her. And when she finds a lead and is like, hey, guys, I'm going to help you out with this because obviously you guys are, you got other shit going on. Maybe check this guy out. And they're like, okay, we'll just, yeah, sure. We'll file that under possible suspect. Yeah, exactly. And then threw it away in the garbage can. Yeah. Yeah, like, because the case, like, the guy had been convicted, so they had a name in the article. They don't say the name in the show, but um, Jerry said it had a similar M.O. It, it had a lot of similarities to it. And so Detective Guzman, when he looked at it, he was like, it does look really similar. Like, it does look like it's a it's a good possible lead. So when he got the article, he got to work and he was like, this could be a strong enough suspect that I could get the stuff tested. So, and she, Jerry said he, you know, got all the stuff and he began uh, detecting and he did <laughs> his work and it was great. Like, it's funny that she called it detecting. But the first thing he had to do was determine whether he can even arrest anyone in this case because of the statute of limitations, which is fucking bonkers. How like, many years is it? Well, here, get ready for this. Nobody could give him a definitive answer. Everybody he asked at the station was like, it's like either six or like seven or maybe eight. He's like, okay, well, if it's six, then my time's already up. I can't even do anything about this anymore, which is fucking ridiculous because if they do get a DNA hit and we know for sure that this is the person who violently attacked somebody and you just can't do anything because it's been six years, like, that's fucked up. If it's seven... He's like, we're within that, but I'd have to do it, like, really quickly. If it's eight, we've got time. Yeah, we've got a little time. So, but, you know, it's, this is 1990, 
what, eight? At that point, yeah. So DNA is still fairly new. Kind of dicey, right? Testing takes a while. So it's like, if you're in that seven year, you're kind of pushing it, right? Yeah, you're like down to the wire. He goes to the DA's office. He's like, I need a definitive answer. I need to know fucking for sure if I can do this. So the DA is like, well, you know, at that time, I was thinking it was eight years. So that's what I told him. Because I thought it was eight years then. Did nobody bother to check on this? Like, I feel like Detective Guzman is the only one that's like, well, let me ask around and get a definitive answer. But the people he's asking are like, I don't really care. I'll just tell you this. I'm thinking that she probably said it to him in a way that he was like, okay, because he's calling her because she's the fucking DA. So she's the one who's supposed to know the statute of limitations. Yeah, this is your fucking job. Yeah. Or look it up because this determines whether or not you can prosecute the case. Right. Ask Jeeves. Yeah. Ask somebody. Anybody. So she's like, yeah, you know, um, it's uh, it's eight years. It's eight. And he's like, golden. I've got it. Okay. So according to the case file of the person who'd been convicted that was in that article, they looked this guy's case file up and all this stuff. He was not in jail when Jerry was attacked. So they're like, all right, we've got a pretty good lead here. So now we're getting somewhere. Now we're in 1999 at the LA Crime Lab. There are thousands of rape kits in freezers, so many that they spill over into refrigerated trailers outside. Refrigerated trailers. Oh, my gosh. I feel like that's not real, like, official and secure. It's like, let's bring in, it's like portables at school. Yeah. It's like, let's bring in some portables and put people's, this, this is actual evidence in criminal cases. I just... Like, let's just bring in an igloo cooler. We'll just put them in there. Yeah. And, like, you know, write everybody's name on it with a Sharpie. That ought to do it. Like, right. I don't know. So, Bill says each kit represents a life on hold, a victim waiting for answers. See? And he's not wrong. I know he's not wrong. Like, preach, Bill. God, he's a great man. Mm-hmm. I just... I cannot say enough good things about him. No. Because of the backlog and expense of testing, Bill tells us that most of the kits are never going to be tested. Just so sad. Why even do, why even go through the extensive invasive rape kit? Why do it? Yeah, exactly. Like putting the victim through even more. Yeah, you've just been yeah. raped and now you're going to have more like trauma. All this stuff. Yeah, exactly. They said that they can only test them if a viable suspect is developed, but like, how often does that even happen, you know, especially if it's like a random thing? Well, and even if they do have somebody who is a viable suspect, what are the odds that the detectives are even going to take it seriously and go forward with it? Yeah. Yeah. They've just got too much going on. So they can now compare the semen from the rape kit to the blood sample of the man in the article that Jerry had sent in because since this guy was a convicted felon. They had his uh, blood sample. On July the 27th, 1999, they get a hit. Now, it did not match the person from the article. Oh, bummer. But they had run it through the offender database, and it did match a man named Reginald Miller. So, at least they got a hit. So, Couldn't this is a repeat offender. Running it through the offender database from the beginning? That's what the fuck I'm saying. But I guess what they're saying is... Because it's expensive, you can't even, this is what I don't, I mean, I understand it costs money and stuff like that, but at the same time, it's like, well, just because I don't have 
a suspect in mind doesn't mean that if you run this, you're not going to get a hit in the database. Like, it could be a repeat offender. Mm-hmm. You could have the person sitting there and we just don't know it. And I'm not trying to bash every detective, but this is a crock of shit. Yeah, it's a totally crock of shit. It's a totally crock of shit. It's a totally crock. <laughs> Reginald Miller has been incarcerated since November 1992 at this point in the story on charges of burglary and rape. Jerry now has a name and face to the man who attacked her. They show his mugshot, and he has this snide fucking smirk on his face. It was so just blatantly like, I don't know, just the look on his face was just like. Like, I know what I did and I'm proud of it or something. Yes, it was awful. So Jerry is ecstatic. She wants to go to trial. She wants to get closure. Like, she's like, all this waiting has finally paid off. And I wonder if. She didn't obviously didn't see his face if she heard his voice, though. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Exactly. I bet she would recognize his voice. So she's like, you know, let's get this thing to trial. I want to prosecute this guy. Like, I want to make sure that this guy can't do this to anybody else. So in December of 1999, Detective Guzman files the case with the DA to bring it to trial. And DA Laura Jane Kessner reviews the case. And at that point, she's like, you know what? Let me just double check that statute of limitations because I didn't fucking double check it before. And she figures out it's six years, not eight. Oh, my God. Yeah, six years. What? If you're not sure, then fucking check it. Like, I am so fucking annoyed with this bitch. I cannot even. Because Detective Guzman did his work. He couldn't get a definitive answer at the station. He calls the DA's office. That's where he should be able to get the answer. She's like, you know what? I'm thinking, uh, thinking it's eight. So go ahead with it. He's like, okay. And then he's like, if you told me six, I, I mean, it sucks, but it's like he wouldn't have, he couldn't have even done the work because there was no point in it. And Jerry was like, well, we haven't even got to her finding out about it. So. But this gives her false hope. This gives everybody false hope. Absolutely. That some, and it's just like this lady is like, oh, well, you know, it's just that I thought it was eight. So I told him it was eight. It's like you have the fucking information. Just fucking check it. I just don't get it. I just kind of feel like and I can't put I can't assign intent or whatever, but it just kind of seems like for her, she thinks about that as just like a job. You know, not as somebody's life that is affected by yeah. something like this. And she's not she's like, I just made a mistake. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I mean, I didn't feel like looking. I didn't feel like getting the book out or whatever the fuck and looking at it. It's not like she's over every single case that ever comes in. Like, I'm sure, you know, you can't know everything. However, you can look up stuff if you don't know the answer. But she is the sex crimes prosecutor. So she should know the statute of limitations for rape. She should probably be up to date with that shit. Like, know what it is. And like you said, if she's not, then there are ways to find out. Don't just give a bullshit answer and make it sound like you know for a fact. Yeah, exactly. So Jerry goes in for her meeting with the DA because at that point, you know, when the DA was going to take the case, she's like, okay, let's set up a meeting. I'll interview the victim. We'll get it ready to go or whatever. And then she finds out the statute of limitations is six years, not eight. So Jerry's going in for her meeting thinking, I'm prepping for trial. And she walks in, and the DA's like, well, Jerry, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Ugh. Yeah. The good news is you don't have to go to trial. The bad news is 
we can't ever prosecute the man who raped you for his crime ever. Ever. And she said, we can't even discuss it. He has privacy rights. (gasps) Privacy rights? Yeah. Whatever progress Jerry had made on her rage probably went out the window at that moment. Absolutely. And talking about it in this interview, Jerry is like breaking up about it. You can see her like looking up, you know, trying to like stifle the tears. Yes. Yes. It's just awful because she's like, I can never, ever, ever get justice. Never. And I can never make sure that this guy is not going to get out and do it to somebody else. And it's not because of any other reason except for somebody dropped the fucking ball on this. Absolutely. Absolutely. She said she felt betrayed by the system. She was denied justice while the person who raped her benefited from the DA not bothering to check the fucking book. Like, on top of that, though, I do feel like that other detective, like, he obviously just threw away that article that she sent in. Like, she actually did give him a lead. What would it have hurt to check into that? Like, there was no reason not to check into it because look at what happened. And by the time she called and gave him that, Reginald Miller, Reginald Miller was already arrested and he was already in prison for raping somebody else. So had they run that shit through, it would have hit. Mm-hmm. It just seems like, I mean, there are all kinds of professions where people get into the job for the wrong reasons. And I feel like not knowing that other detective, he got into it for the wrong reasons because obviously he doesn't want... He didn't, that day, did not want to see justice for someone. Yeah. Because he didn't give a shit about it. Or, yeah, and is it, well, I don't want people telling me how to do my job or, you know, like, dig measuring contests, like, she's not going to send me the leads, I'm going to get the leads on my own, like, whatever. I don't know what it was, but I just don't understand why you wouldn't check into that because this detective immediately was like, I'm going to look into this. And he did, and he got a hit. And the first detective absolutely would have gotten a hit. So, yeah, there's just no excuse. Not only all of that, but Reginald Miller at this point is set to be released in a couple years. (gasps) So Jerry knows somebody else is going to fall victim to it because she's like, he hasn't been mentally readjusted in any shape or fashion. You know, he's just, he's in jail, but he's not getting any type of treatment. You know, there's nothing that they're doing to work with him and trying to, you know, anger man, whatever it is, like rehabilitate him yeah he's not being rehabilitated so they're just going to release him and he's going to what is he going to do he's going to go back out and rape and rob like that's what he's going to do because that's what he's always done so she decides she's got to do something about it she gets in touch with california assembly member lou correa and he agrees with jerry that six years is just not enough time to prosecute rape cases he at that point already had a bill in the works to increase the statute from six years to ten And Jerry is like, that's a cute start, but what if we change it to you have one year from the date of the DNA match to prosecute? So that way, if you have DNA evidence, it would basically put the statute of limitations on hold so that even if it's 15, 20 years down the road or whatever, once you get that hit, that's when that year-long... That's when the clock, clock starts. starts. Yeah. Yeah. Because the DNA evidence is going to show that that person legit did do it. And I'm sorry, but in no world should it ever be that just because you didn't get caught in this amount of time, 
you shouldn't be held responsible. You did it no matter how long it takes to figure out that you did it. Yeah, especially with a violent crime like that. Totally. You know, we're talking about, I mean, there's no statute of limitations on murder. I really don't think there should be one at all on rape. Well, no matter how you slice it, it's a violent attack on it's an aggressive violent attack on a person yeah and and it's in the it's in the category of of crimes that escalate that can lead to other violent acts murder you know strangulation all of these things like there are there are other crimes that are akin to this because of the motivations of rape and things like that you know, kidnapping is on that kind of same plane to me. Like, all of these things escalate, they get worse, and they can absolutely 100% lead to homicide. So why would you say, well, you did it five years ago, so probably, you know, you're fine. Like, mm-hmm. that just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, and if we're, if that's the, if that's the way it is, and let's say somebody is habitually raping people, because that's typically what happens. You don't, mostly don't ever hear about people that rape one, just the one time. But if they space them out, even, just enough, you can never be convicted. Uh, Right, absolutely. And, and I don't know how many rapists can, you know, hold that back for that long. But I mean, BTK did it. Those murders, like, you know, yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's just setting people up to get away with it, which is not cool. Mm-hmm. And when the law was written, DNA evidence wasn't a thing. So it probably made sense then for the statute maybe to be six years because it's like, well, we if we don't have eyewitness accounts, if we don't have a description, if we don't have these other things, then we're probably not going to catch them. Like at that time, they weren't thinking like, well, we could test the DNA evidence for years and years kind of thing. Right. There wasn't a way to match it years later, probably. Yeah. So what they were saying was, you know, why should the victims suffer? Because the law doesn't keep up with the technology. So they wanted to change the law so that it it did. On February 29th of 2000, Jerry speaks to the California State Assembly and tells her story. And she kind of humanized the bill. Um, Lou Correa thought it was important for her to actually speak to the assembly because instead of him just kind of giving an overview of it, you know, she's somebody who's been through it. And he said that he was tearing up while she was talking about it. And when he looked up, like a lot of the other assembly members were tearing up too. So he was like, you know, he knew that she had an effect on them and it it just helped them see like, these are people that we're talking about. This is not just paperwork. These are people. So the bill passes and becomes the new statute of limitations for sexual assault cases. And Jerry went on to continue victim advocacy. What a little vigilante. I know. And she finally, you know, now she was never able to prosecute Reginald, but... She was able to help ensure that other people were able to get justice moving forward. And that's, you hear about that so much. I mean, with murder cases, it's like you can never bring that person back, but you can prevent this from happening in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really, the only beautiful thing that can come of a violent crime like that. Yeah, for sure. I'm pretty spiritual about the whole thing now. I've always been a hard worker at whatever I do and kind of a perfectionist about it. Um, I feel like 
like this is lifelong work now, um, something that I'll always be involved in. And I feel very grateful to be here now, healthy, happy, um, having a good life. So that's the first one. Perfect. I love it. Okay. Second story is titled The Burning Secret. And these are on Hulu, BT Dub. Uh, This is season one, episode three. And you have to have the live TV option. Yes. Just letting you know. Yeah, you got to have live. So this one's called The Burning Secret. And (laughs) the first thing we get is, I don't know, I guess they have like on-screen text. It's kind of like a trailer for the case. But this one was in the... Well, it'll all kind of come together, I guess, once you hear the whole case, but it's almost like a little poem, but also like a a spell, like, you know, it's like bubble, bubble, toil and trouble, murder hides in cold case rubble. Oh, that's, that's it. I'm going to cross stitch that on a pillow. You absolutely should. <laughs> wow. I enjoy that. I bet people would buy it. <laughs> Okay, so we're in Trumbull County, Ohio. This is January 3rd, 1978. A cold and quiet midnight in rural Trumbull County, Ohio. 24-year-old Gary Morris and his wife Marie are sound asleep in their trailer home. Gary Morris says his aunt, Judy, came into their trailer, his and his wife's trailer, yelling that there had been a fire at her house and she and her husband Donald live in the trailer next door with their two sons Christopher Stiles and Eddie Bridge. She says the three of them are trapped inside the burning trailer. Gary, no hesitation, gets dressed. He runs over to the trailer. It's totally engulfed in flames. He goes right in. He said he was crawling on his knees and he got to the bathroom and he found nine-year-old Eddie passed out on the bathroom floor. He had third-degree burns and had suffered severe smoke inhalation, but Gary is able to pull him from the house. The fire department arrives, and they attempt to rescue Donald and Christopher, so they they were able to find them, but unfortunately, they're not able to save them. So Donald was 41 years old, and Christopher was only five. Oh, my gosh. They are able to retrieve their bodies, which are referred to as charred, which is fucking horrible. What seems like a tragic house fire turns bizarre pretty quickly when a firefighter finds a severed human ear in the field just feet from the trailer. It's amazing to me the combing through of the surrounding or like a crime scene in the surrounding area because to find a severed ear in the middle of a field that's some good that's some good investigative work. Oh, yeah, because had they not, if they were like, oh, house fire, bye, like, yeah, honestly, it never, I think it never, ever, ever would have become anything had they not found this ear, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. The fire chief said there was no question. This is a human ear. Part of the hairline was still attached to it. He said the hair was graying and there was a hair in the ear. And this is super gross. But if we have two badly burned bodies, one of them is 41, one of them's five. Who would you guess is exactly the year belong to? We're guessing who it belongs to, but also because the bodies were so badly burned, you don't necessarily, you wouldn't have necessarily known that an ear was missing 
So had they not found it, they wouldn't have been able to put this piece of the puzzle together. The bodies are sent to the coroner's office, and the deaths are ruled accidental. But the coroner determines this without performing an autopsy. He just sort of glances over and says, yeah, this was accidental. They died from the fire. Where did the ear come from? The coroner said the bodies were in such bad condition that obviously perished in the fire. That was his ruling. Wouldn't the ear lead to some kind of a conclusion that there's something more to it than that? He said, oh, that never got there. Someone said it wasn't important and threw it away. Oh, boy. Oh, boy is right. They threw it away. I feel like if I was that, was he a police chief? Fire chief. Fire chief, excuse me. I feel like I would feel like I've been taking crazy pills. Exactly. He's just like, what? Okay, so I'm sorry. What Doesn't the ear, though, wouldn't the ear lead you to a different conclusion? He's like, ear? Threw that shit in the garbage. What? I don't, I don't understand. The coroner doesn't feel like the ear's a big deal, but the undertaker does. So he feels like there's more to the story. He asks Donald's brother, Bud, if he wants to look at the body because he says there's some suspicious things that he noticed, but Bud was like, dude, I can't look at the body. Like, I'm not ready for that. The undertaker says that he noticed some cuts on Donald's body that didn't jive with the whole he died because of a fire thing. Like, he's like, it just seems like there's a lot more going on here. And the family offered to bury Donald in their family plot. And Judy, the wife, got super pissed about it. And she said that they could bury him wherever they wanted. She said, put him on the moon for all I care. And they thought it was pretty weird that she just didn't give a fuck where he got buried or what happened to him or what was going on with any of that. Like, at first, it seemed like she wanted to just get his body as far away from them as she could. And when they were like, look, we don't know how much it's going to cost and we don't really have a lot of money. And, you know, we weren't prepared for this. This was very unexpected. You know, we didn't have a fun set aside or whatever. It's not like he was sick, you know. And she's just like, well, fine, put him wherever the fuck you want. I don't give a shit. Like, just done with it. So they end up burying Donald and Christopher together. Eddie did survive. Three months later, Bud visited the police department to discuss the family's suspicions of Judy. And he was feeling a lot of pressure from the family. They'd been talking about it a lot. And they're just like, I really think she had something to do with it. So they, the family says that Judy's into reading tarot cards. She would read them a lot. They said they didn't really take it super seriously, but she did say that her religion was witchcraft. So she said she was a witch. And that's Wicca, isn't it? Or is that something completely different? I, you know what? I'm not 100% sure because I think there's, because uh, I know there's like the white magic and then there's, you know, so I think, isn't Wicca. That has to do with, like, the, the earth, earth and the trees and yeah. Yeah, everything's connected. Yeah. But she's, like, she says she's a witch. It's pagan witchcraft is Wicca. It just says, is a modern pagan religion. Scholars of religion 
categorize it as both a new religious movement and as part of the occultist stream of Western esotericism. Hmm. I have no idea. Hmm. Yeah, that doesn't tell me anything. Mm-mm. They believe in the goddess, respect nature, and hold both polytheistic and pantheistic views. Most Wiccans accept the so-called Wiccan read, an ethical code that states, if it harm none, do what you will. Hmm. I don't know. I feel like that's not what she believes. Okay. Because she's pretty violent. Sure. But I don't know. So maybe she's into a specific form of witchcraft. They didn't really get super into it. They just said she was a witch and that was her religion. They did say that she got pretty upset with the Morris family because they didn't take her seriously. They'd kind of laugh it off when she'd read tarot cards and she's like, no, this is real. Like, this is my religion. So just before the fire, a few days, I think, before, Judy and Donald got into an argument about faith. Judy got so upset that she pulled a knife on Donald. And the way that his brother Bud described it was that they had been arguing and she said, you know, she's talking about witchcraft. And he said that his brother wasn't a super strong Christian, but he believed in Jesus And so they got an argument about that. He was saying, no, it's Jesus. And she's saying, no, witchcraft and whatever. And so she pulled a knife. And so he started walking towards her, I'm guessing, to get the knife from her. And she started walking backwards. And she bumped into, I guess the doorway was open. And she kind of fell back down the the steps. I don't, if it was at their trailer, then I would imagine it was just a few steps like out the front door probably but he said she tripped and fell and then Donald was able to he like stepped on her hand and got the knife from her so she did not end up physically attacking him but she did pull a knife on him detective denunzio is assigned to the case and he visits the scene of the crime so he when when bud went in to talk to the police department he talked with denunzio and this is only three months after, so everything's still there. The trailer's still there, still there, all that stuff. So he goes back, and he's looking, and he says that there's three places in the trailer that are seemed hotter than the rest, like that the fire was much hotter there. So he thought, that's probably enough to suggest arson. So he calls the fire chief back, Ed Brins, to investigate. He brought in another arson expert with him they went through, and they were able to confirm that the fire had been started in three separate areas of the trailer, and it was, in fact, arson. Now, in the charred rubble, they also find a book of occult rituals. Inside is a step-by-step guide to a revenge ritual, which involves cutting off a human ear. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The ear that the coroner threw into the garbage. That, like that kind of an ear. Mm-hmm. Detective Denunzio wants the bodies exhumed and an autopsy actually performed. It blows my mind that they did not perform an autopsy and that everybody felt like that was fine. It just seems like in some cases, they're, it's like they want a resolution. So they're like, look, it, it is what it is. Let's move on. Yeah. No questions asked. Nobody doing invest- any investigating. Like, how many, I don't know how often it is, but you've definitely heard of plenty of cases where 
Somebody has tried to use fire to cover up another crime. Right. So why the fuck would you not just take a look at the body and make sure? Because what if there's no smoke in their lungs? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Also, on top of that, you found an ear chopped off. That should have been the biggest red flag that the only red flag really that you would have needed like let's just say that yeah the protocol is okay if they were found in a fire they died from the fire okay but how do you explain the ear exactly like even if there was no ear you should have done an autopsy and had they done an autopsy they would have found all this other shit but they had the ear like i I feel like i'm taking crazy pills sure everybody does yeah so the prosecutor's office says no we're not going to exhume the bodies what there's not enough evidence here oh and he's like but i proved arson three times now like there's three separate instances of arson in that house and he's like here's the thing if you have people that died in a fire and the fire was started on purpose it was arson then you've got a homicide Two plus two equals four people. And the prosecutor's office is like... Well, not always, though. Yeah. They're like, well... No. It's going to cost money. There's no point in digging up these bodies. You don't have enough. It doesn't make any sense. And he's like, somebody started that fire, dude. Like, somebody started the fire. There's a reason for that. And they said, no, it's it's not worth it. So... He visits the cemetery. He said he went to the cemetery after the the exhumation was denied. And he visited Donald and Christopher's grave. And he said that he promised them that day that he was going to bring their killer to justice. And he was like, I didn't know how long it was going to take me. If it took till the day I retired. Like, he was like, this was the case. Like, I, I know there's like, you hear some detectives talk about it where it's like the case. Like, it haunts them. They can't stop thinking about it. They gotta solve it like this was his case so 15 kind of like vanilla ice give me a problem yo i'll solve it sure i'm just saying yeah give me a cold case i'll solve it there you go so 15 years go by and during that time he had been doing highway patrol he'd been working midnight shift on highway patrol but at this point he'd been recently reassigned to the role of detective and so the Morris case is the very first case he pulls off that dusty old shelf. As soon as he could, he was like, I'm doing the Morris case. So he asks to exhume the bodies again because now he's detective again. He wants to reopen this case. They say no again. What the fuck? Yeah. So he said, like, he was super frustrated. He throws down the file on his desk and there was light coming in from the window and it just seemed to, like, shine down on the file on Eddie Bridges' name, which was the nine-year-old who survived the attack. Ooh. And he was like, I'll call Eddie. Light bulb. Yeah. So he calls Eddie. Eddie's now 24, and he's in prison for rape. Oh, no. Yeah. So he calls Eddie at the prison, and he says, you know, I'm a detective. I'm working the case. I think that this was not just an accidental fire. I want to talk to you about it. And so he said, Eddie got super pissed. He got really violent over the phone. He's like, absolutely not. Not talking to you about it at all. And so Detective Denunzio is like, okay, fine. I will. I'll never call you again. Like, if that's what you want, I will absolutely. You'll never hear from me again. 
but just be sure that this is what you want. Like, are you sure that, because the, the detective knew Judy had murdered the the dad, the dad right? at Donald. least. Yeah. So, and he felt like this, you know, then kid probably knew something, but he's like, you know, if you, if this is what you want, if you want to just go on with nobody ever being prosecuted, then that's fine. I'll leave you alone. And so he said he kind of broke down and he said, well, I don't want to talk about this over the phone. Come visit me and I'll do an interview with you. And he was like, dude, I'm not driving 350 miles unless you give me something. Like, I don't want to drive there. And then you just be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't have anything. So he said, well, how about this? I saw my mom stab my dad to death. And Denunzio was like, I'm already almost there. Like, <laughs> right. Put a pot of coffee on him there. So March 4th, 1993, Eddie Bridge tells his story from the night of the fire. He says there was another argument that night. And Judy hit Donald with a large ashtray over the head. And you know those big, thick, glass ashtrays. From the 70s? Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah, that's what she hit him with. It's like basically a frying pan. He said that Donald fell, and then Judy went and stood over him, and when he started to get up, she ran to the kitchen, and she got a knife from the drawer. She then started stabbing him in the back because he was trying to, like, roll over to get up. So she started stabbing him in the back, and he was still on the ground, and Eddie thought it was four or five times, maybe more, he said. Eddie then said he went into his bedroom, he got in his bed, and he hid under the covers. And then he realized the trailer was on fire, and his mom was just gone. Like, She left her two children in that house. I mean, she murdered her husband. So fucked up. But I think he was already dead by that point, probably. Either way, it's still fucked up. But her two children were just what she thought was asleep. She's going to let them burn in a fire? totally okay with just leaving them and letting them fend for themselves. Just bye. Are you fucking kidding me? So now there's enough evidence for the prosecutor to exhume the bodies of Donald Miller and Christopher Stiles. Finally. They call in a forensic anthropologist to examine the bodies. And this guy works at the Smithsonian. So, like, he's legit. Fucking legit. Dr. Owsley performs a careful examination of the remains, and he finds that Donald's number 10 rib has been cut through in two places. And has very defined sharp force trauma. Hmm. I wonder if they could have found that out, say, I don't know, right after it fucking happened. With a fucking autopsy? Yeah. Probably not. That's (laughs) not the sort of thing you would see in an autopsy. That's true. So he says this is not something that can happen due to a fire. You know, it doesn't just, it's not like anything was just broken, you know, had rubble fallen on him or something like that. It was cut. Well, and it's not like how when you're in a fire and you die from it, your ear falls off. Right. It's this is different. Yeah. Yes. So he finds seven additional cuts as well. So he said he had at least seven stab wounds to the back, maybe as many as nine. Judy Morris remarried shortly after the death of her husband and son to her fourth husband, Tom Delgros, and moved to Pennsylvania. You really don't want to be one of her husbands. I really don't think so. No. I... I'm guessing all the other ones were still alive, but, I mean, I don't know. It's a little bit of a Black Widow situation. Yeah, she's dangerous. 
Judy was late getting home one day in March of 1993, and her husband started getting worried about her, so he called her work, expecting to find her there, just like working late, getting some overtime. They were like, actually, no, she's been arrested for murder instead. Oh, my god! he's like, huh? <laughs> what? <laughs> so she's extradited to... Is this to... Ashton Kutcher? Am I being punked? Exactly. She's extradited to Ohio to stand trial for the murder of her husband and son. And the media, of course, grabs onto the whole witchcraft thing. They want to really focus on the occult thing. But the DA there said he wanted to minimize the focus on witchcraft. Because he's like, this is a murder trial. We're talking about murder here. Like, don't make it the salacious whatever. She murdered them in cold blood. That's what happened. So the defense, the defense tried to say that his ear. Oh, no. Oh, God. And the stab wounds were from the firefighters. What? Yeah, because they used, I don't remember the name of what they said that they used, but they used stuff to like break through the walls. Like an and, axe like, or something? No, not even that. A the, bayonet? <laughs> yeah, no. The anthropologist said it was, they showed him on the stand, like the instrument that they were talking about, and he said it was very... um Dull? Dull, thank you. It's dull on the edges. It's not it's not a sharp instrument. It's it's nothing that could precisely cut through bone or anything. It it didn't match at all. So he's like, So it's no. like the difference between a knife and a spoon. Basically, yeah. So he's like, No, that did not happen. Like, nice try, guys, but the firefighters didn't cut his fucking ear off with basically a spoon. I cannot believe I mean, just some stories and how much they reach is really it's almost impressive (laughs) like yeah really that's okay that's your story and you're sticking with it okay yeah 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 so judy morris delgros is found guilty and convicted of two counts of aggravated murder and she's sentenced to two consecutive life terms on november 29th 1993 can you imagine her husband like current husband at the time and he's like wow we had plans to go to Bali next week, and yeah. now you're arrested yeah. for murder. Yeah, and he's like, I mean, what the fuck? Like, you could have, yeah. I mean, obviously, I guess she's not going to tell him she killed two people, but you think you especially know one of them being her fucking kid, oh, I just cannot. Kid. Yeah, but I mean, and not to say that this is any excuse, obviously, like, I do not excuse that behavior. However, she probably would have had a very much harder time convincing everyone that it, the fire was an accident or whatever if she brought the kids with her right yeah i don't know but it's like she could have at least well obviously she wasn't going to put herself in harm's way well that's 100 because she could have yeah. gone in and got her kids out and then she would have been like this heroic mom right but no and also why would you not leave the ear in the fucking trailer yeah you would to let it burn know. up too if you're gonna go to the trouble of starting a fire in three places in the trailer to make sure that you burn all of the evidence. I really do. I don't know. I mean, obviously, she meant to kill her kids on purpose. But did she start the fire in the three places where, like, each person was? That's fucking horrible. Yeah. But if you're going to go to the trouble to hide the evidence with fire, why would you throw the damn ear out the window or whatever? Well, and all that being said, it really didn't matter because... 19 people who were involved in this case basically were like you're overthinking this it's not there's no foul play here 
Yeah, it's totally common for somebody to die in a fire and their ear to get chopped off. Yeah, to find random body parts in a field close by. Yeah. That's normal. Because, you know, there was an explosion. So maybe it perfectly cut off his ear and sent that just flying out into the field. With the greatest of ease. Yeah, it's just fire, man. You can't, it's a natural wonder. You can't. We can't know what fire does. We can't explain it. No. It just happens. It It just happens. So I feel like these are two cases, too, where, like, you picked some that are pissing me off. I know. The system just really fucking really tried to fail everybody. But let's look at it glass half full. There were two amazing detectives that just wouldn't quit. Absolutely. They They Aaron Brockovich'd that shit. They sure did. So speaking of this one, Detective Denunzio... At the time of recording the show, this aired in 2000 or 2001, uh, he was training, at that point, canines for the police department. And the prosecutor says something that a lot of them don't really say a whole lot, but he admits to them dropping the ball and just really, like, talks up the detective for continuing to pursue the case even when the prosecutors said they weren't going to do anything about it. Dan has been referred to as a bloodhound. And when you you see something as he saw back in 1978 that's not right, and he felt we didn't do our jobs, that is, the system didn't do our jobs, then we need to give a lot of credit to the Dan Denunzios because we need to admit that we do miss things at times. And this case proves you can miss something you still can resurrect the truth, and you still can win. That's really sweet. Yeah. So, you know, well done, Detective Denunzio. Yes. We salute you. Yeah, we do. And Detective Guzman. We salute you. The end. I love you, boys. Yeah. So, that's it. I'll put the link to the Hulu, like, if you want to watch it, the series. I mean, again, you'd have to have the live, but that way you can go right to it. Um, you won't be disappointed with that sweet, sweet sound of Bill Curtis. My God, that voice. I we can't it. stop. We it's can't. ridiculous. No. Bill, if you're out there, we love you. Yeah, we do. And also, I think these are kind of fun because, or not fun, but you know what I mean. Like, you get two cases in one. Yeah. A. And B, you hear us incessantly talking up Bill Curtis, so... I can't stress how important the Bill Curtis part is. <laughs> God, I'm annoying. You're annoying me. I'm not annoying anyone, but you are annoying me. I don't care. I love him. <laughs> love him. He's like my crush. Oh. Like all the time I'm just like, Mrs. Trella and Bill sitting <laughs> in a tree. <laughs> Bill, I love you so. Yeah. Yes. She's writing her name all over his binder. I mean, wait. She's writing his name all over her binder. Fuck. <laughs> Trella <clears throat> Curtis. <laughs> it has a ring to it. It sure does. Better than Slim, eh? It's much better than Slim. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being a friend. Yeah. So this one's not going to have a part two. This was just both. Right. Yeah. So different case next week. Yay. But hopefully you enjoyed it and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 